So, uh, Rob and Julie's son, Matthew, did see him very... Were you sitting over there before? No, you're always sitting over there, okay. I said, I told him to sit behind Simon, his brother, and just give him a poke in the back when he falls asleep or something like that, but... It's enticing, yeah, true. Good to have you guys with us as we uh, come and uh, celebrate today. So, as we uh, draw very close to Christmas... um, Another talk today, thinking just shaping that around Christmas, and something I can remember as a little boy... Uh, well, mum, my mother was cooking Christmas dinner, and I would often say to her, when are they coming, mum? When are they coming? We were expecting guests to be coming, and there was always a huge expectation around that. It was normally perhaps some cousins, or my nana, uh, nana and pop would come out, and as a little boy, you were just really looking forward to the Christmas dinner, or maybe the presents ladder. I'm not sure what it was. It's probably the presents ladder. Anyway... You were expecting someone to come, expecting someone to come. Uh, People all over the world are planning now, and probably some are in the motion of, to go home or to come home for Christmas. Whether it's planes, trains, automobiles, buses, motorbikes, you name it, people are trying to get home for Christmas. They want to come home. And there'll be homes all over the world looking for with excitement, expectation, anticipation, with people coming home or coming around for Christmas. You see, Christmas, it's all about Someone coming. Someone coming. 2,000 years ago, uh, they didn't know it clearly back then, but someone came. Someone came. And that someone who came was God in the form of a baby, Jesus Christ. You would have seen that reflected through a number of the songs we just uh, sung then as well. So really important as we think of it today, Christmas is about someone coming. If you've got your Bibles, uh, go with me to Hebrews chapter 2 and uh, verses 10 to 8, then we're going to read that as we think about someone coming. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2 and uh, read verses 10 through to 18. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should, be, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of a congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Uh, Lord, we just thank you this morning as we gather uh, together. And uh, come, Lord, and now sit under your word. We ask and pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come and speak to us through this word. Uh, You would change our mind, that you would renew our thinking. 
and that, Lord, particularly today as we focus upon the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of God to be amongst us, to become a human being, I really pray you would just open up our hearts a little bit more just to see how spectacular, how stunning and how amazing this really, really is. God came to be with us. Help us to see that this morning, we pray, Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Look, there will be things that will baffle us in life. Uh, There'll be things that we just don't fully understand or comprehend. But just because we don't understand it or fully comprehend it doesn't take away the amazement from those things. Uh, We may stare at a a space rocket heading off into deep space and uh, not not fully comprehend how this thing actually leaves our atmosphere and then lands on the moon or wherever, wherever it might do out in space and send back this live video even now of actually these things taking place. We just can't sit there and imagine all the parts that go together in that rocket, whether it be switches or solenoids or motors or sensors or microcomputers or valves or batteries or fuel cells or thrusters and who knows how many other millions of things are possible in a space rocket. Even though we can't fully explain that as space engineers and even though we can't fully comprehend it, we are still blown away by what we see and what we experience. And so it is with some of the doctrines or the knowledge of who God is and what he's done. God wants us to know things about him. That's a great thing that God has done for us. And particularly here, uh, we discover God so clearly, the clearest possible way, in his word. He wants us to know things about him and not only just know those things, but actually, as it were, blown away by how great and how majestic, how mighty this God is. And today we want to see and look at one of these wonderful aspects of God and who he is and what he's done for us. And that is when God came down to be one of us, to be with us, one of his very own creation. We call this the Advent season, the Advent season or the coming of the Messiah. And we know from the Bible that the Messiah is God himself in the form of Jesus Christ. So we want to explore that today as we think about uh, this coming down of God. Firstly, there's some context that will help us here. As you read through the book of Hebrews, you might think, okay, what's sort of happening here? Why is this being written to these people uh, nearly 2,000 years ago? Uh, Hebrews is being written to Christians, believers, who are going through a very difficult time with significant persecution taking place in their world at that place and at that time. The persecution is so strong and so difficult and the pressure is so tremendous upon their faith that at some point, or some of them are at the point of thinking of throwing in the towel and walking away from their faith. That's what the Hebrews are, as the writer of the Hebrews writes this. Persecution is so difficult, so challenging, they're thinking about walking away from their faith and saying, I can't do this anymore, I'm over it. Hebrews is then written to them to show them the supremacy of Jesus Christ and to put our faith and our trust in him. That's what Hebrews has written. It's all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ and who he is and to put our faith and our trust in him. That's the backdrop, therefore, where Hebrews is written into as we think about this passage now and how it talks to us about uh, God becoming one of us. And that's the first thing we want to think about here is God became a human being. Uh, we use a phrase there called the incarnation. Now, I've just got to let you know on a, a little secret here. Whenever I used to hear that word when I was a young boy, all I could think of was carnation milk. You just, you know, that was similar, isn't it? It's similar, but it's very different. 
one was the carnation milk factory, I think it was in Merrigan or somewhere. But whenever I think of incarnation, I always think of carnation milk. It's not about that, okay? It's not about milk you pour out of a can. Uh, the term incarnation means embodiment. And in this particular sense, we're talking about the embodiment of God, that God has now taken on a body. The Bible tells that God is spirit, but now God is incarnate or is, in, or is embodied and has taken on a body. And without going through all the prophecies to prove this, uh, that person or that body is a real and living Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Let's see it here where, they, where the Hebrews writer reflects on that for us. In verse 14 he says this, after I cough, <coughs> sorry, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That he there is Jesus Christ. Jesus was a real and living human being. He had flesh and blood. It says there, Jesus shared in flesh and blood. That's what we got. You grab your arm there, that's flesh. And below that skin, there's all sorts of blood vessels and things. It's, there's blood flowing there. It's, it's our humanness of how we are. But at the same time, as the writer's talking about there, that he shared in our flesh and our blood. If we go back to Hebrews 1, he tells us that he's also God. Verse 3 of chapter 1, we'll throw it up there on the screen for you as well. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. There's that word he there again. That he is Jesus Christ, the same Jesus who was flesh and blood we just saw before. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. Now, this is one of the things that we won't be able to comprehend as we look at this in the next few minutes, but also at the same time it should begin to um, wow us, awe us, blow us away with amazement and thinking that God is Fully, uh, that Jesus is fully God and fully man and he's with us. To help us see that, let's think about a few things here. What do we know about Jesus? We discover it in the Bible. Let's have a look at it here in chapter 1 of Colossians. We see some things here that Paul wrote about Jesus to the Colossian church. He says this, He, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, Jesus, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, supreme. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Wouldn't you like to put that on your CV? It's pretty comprehensive. It's a very encompassing picture here of who Jesus is. Jesus is the exact likeness of the invisible God. All things are created by Jesus, the Son of God, through him and for him. And in him, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, 
all things hold together. I hold together because of who Jesus is. If Jesus doesn't allow me to hold together, I won't hold together. I will fall apart. I'm not sure how that will look, but that's exactly what's going to happen here. If Jesus doesn't hold me together, I will fall apart. That word all there is very prominent in that little passage. It's all, it's all, it's all. It's it's a very big encompassing word, giving us a picture about Jesus. Everything in this universe has been created by him, the Son of God. And everything in this universe has been created to glorify him, to make him look spectacular, to look glorious. Go back to Hebrews 1.3 for a moment there and see what it says. Upholding the word of the, uh, the universe by the word of his power. The Son of God is keeping every star in its orbit. That's who Jesus is and that's what Jesus is doing. Every planet is circling at precisely the right speed and the right path so they don't collide. Every galaxy in this known universe that we are aware of perfectly moulds or fits into the next one right alongside it so that we don't have a cataclysmic explosion where these galaxies collide. Jesus is holding this universe in its place. Jesus is keeping the sun right on track so that it's not too close to us and we are incinerated by it, or it's not too far away and we are frozen to death by it. The Son of God is holding the sun right where it is. Now the sun, we are finally balanced with the sun. Seriously, we are finally balanced. If you go to the North Pole, you will freeze up there. If you come to the equator, you'll get really hot. If you go back down to the South Pole, you'll get really cold again. It just shows you how finely balanced the earth is in relationship to the sun. That's Jesus. That's the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God, has done that and is still doing that right now as we speak. As I speak now, he holds me together. As I speak now, he keeps the sun right where it is and he gives it the fuel to keep burning as well. And Jesus, the Son of God, was doing that when he was lying in the manger of Bethlehem as a helpless baby boy. When Jesus cried for milk and then cried in pain because of wind in his stomach, he at the same time was upholding the universe by the word of his power. When Jesus fell over and bruised his knee as he tried to walk for the first few times as a toddler, he at the same time, the Son of God, was keeping the sun right where it is. When Jesus hit his thumb with a hammer in his earthly father's workshop and the wood bench out the back and cried out with pain, as a little boy, he was maintaining gravity right through this universe so that we didn't drift out of alignment and crash into another planet. You see, all these things truly happened. As Jesus grew up, he experienced all the things that we experience as human beings. Jesus, the Son of God, who's upholding the universe by the word of his power, had to learn to walk and to talk. He couldn't talk when he first came into the world. Audible sounds, that is. He probably cried quite a bit. He had to learn to read and write. The eternal Son of God had to learn to read and write. He had to learn to eat and drink. He had to learn how to be fed and how to actually drink himself. He experienced, Jesus the Son of God, tiredness. He experienced colds and flu, which I've had one for the last couple of weeks. 
Jesus experienced all of that. And at exactly the same time, Jesus remained God who was upholding all things, including the universe by the word of his power while he was growing and developing as a human being. We see many times in the life of Jesus recorded in the scriptures for us where he did only things God could do. Jesus raised the dead. Jesus walked on the water. Jesus made the blind to see again. He enabled the deaf to hear. He actually knew what people were thinking. And he could tell them what they were thinking. And at the end of each day after Jesus had done those things, he was tired and he needed to go to sleep. He was exhausted. And while he was sleeping, what was Jesus doing? He was upholding the universe by the word of his power while he was sleeping because he was tired. Now you or I can't fully comprehend that. How can this person do all those miracles by day and say, I'm exhausted, guys, I've got to go to sleep. And at the same time, he's keeping the sun exactly where it needs to be. He's keeping every galaxy perfectly fitted alongside the next one. At the same time as he's sleeping. You see, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is fully God and fully man. There's not one part about Jesus that isn't human. He is totally human. And there's not one part about Jesus that isn't God. He's fully God. There's two natures in the one person. With this teaching in the early church, they struggled with this. They couldn't grasp or comprehend it. We're probably not much different today either, actually. No different, really. They they just couldn't get this thinking clear. They're thinking he must either be God or he must either be man. How does he he be two into one? And they kept erring. And, And when they erred on the side of Jesus being more human and less God, when that happened, they lost sight of the holiness and the justice of God. They just saw him more as this human person and not the God figure. And if you took it back the other way, if they saw Jesus more like God and less human, well, then they lost this sort of compassionate or sort of relationship element about God because he's more God and less human. He's more like just an apparition or some sort of ghostly type thing. And they kept, just they couldn't get it right. Actually, it was about 420 years later that they sat down and said, we need to write something here to try and sort this confusion out. Now, they sat down at a place called Chalcedon in, in 451 AD, and here's what they wrote. I'm gonna, we'll put it up on the screen for you as well. Here's what they wrote to try and uh, sort out this confusion. They said this, We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a reasonable, rational soul and body, consubstantial or co-essential with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusably, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature 
being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, only begotten, God and Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Obviously, you write very long sentences back then because there's no full stops in that. That's just all one sentence. But that's, that's the confession they come out with. That's not in the Bible, but that's taken from a scriptural background. This is the confession they come out to say, this is two persons, sorry, two natures in the one person, fully God and fully man. We won't do it today, but if you, want to, um, if you look up Chelsea Don, uh, Chelsea Don 451 AD, you can, you can Google that creed. Go through it slowly and just think about what they wrote there as they really try to nail down this truth about the incarnate uh, God in Jesus Christ. Gloriously, amazingly, 2,000 years ago, that's what we see. Now, maybe you're here for the first time at Exchange and think, what are you guys on about? Who is this Jesus you're talking about? Who are these guys talking about here in 451 AD, like 1,600 years ago? We're glad you're here. Jesus is truly amazing. Stick with us and you'll find out some more about it as we think about him today. We could ask these questions about that. Well, what for? Why was God with us? Why did he come down to us? What's this all about? Why? Really important. This question of why God became one of us again should arouse worship and praise for such a wonderful God as we think about why he came to be with us, why he came down. God came down to die on our behalf. Look at it there at the end of verse 9. It says this, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And then in verse 14 it says this, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death. The Bible testifies right throughout that Jesus came to die. The fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ, came to die. We have rejected and rebelled against our holy creator. And God has decreed that our sin, that rejection of God, earns the penalty of death. Jesus came down to die for us. But let me throw this question in as well. Why does it have to be God who dies? Why does it have to be God who dies in our place? Why couldn't it be an angel? Or why couldn't God just produce this perfect human being? And he or she could die. Why does it have to be God who dies? To answer that question, we need to know something about our own brokenness or our sinfulness before God ourselves. Our rejection or our rebellion of God in ruling our lives God, you're not ruling my life. Life's all about me. I'll rule my own life, thank you. Isn't a small matter that we can just, as it were, sweep under the carpet and forget all about it and just move on in life? That sinfulness and that brokenness isn't like that. It's not a small matter when it comes to God. To sin against God, to reject God, to rebel against the God who gives us life and breath is massively big. Beyond their comprehension of how big it is. Maybe a small example might help you. If I was to try and to break into Prime Minister Scott Morrison's home, like a thief, uh, the retaliation and the punishment that I would get will be swifter and bigger 
than if you would break into someone else's home on the other side of town. If I was to get past the front gate of the PM's home, security would close in on me like a ton of bricks and literally pin me to the ground, example, and perhaps a poor comparison. But when we sin against God, we are sinning against infinite holiness and righteousness. Our sin is an attack on absolute pure holiness and pristine righteousness when we reject and we rebel against this good God who's given us life. Our sin, therefore, deserves infinite justice because of the position of who God is. His position is that he's infinite in perfections, infinite in holiness, infinite in righteousness. So when I sin against an infinite God... The penalty that is deserved is an infinite penalty because I've, deserved the, uh, I've sinned against an infinite God. Anything less than an infinite penalty wouldn't be fitting for God's supreme position in our lives, in this world, in this universe. So this is where Jesus or God steps in at this time. To satisfy God's infinite justice and holiness, there has to be an infinite righteousness or holiness to satisfy that. And only God can provide that infinite holiness or infinite righteousness. No angel could provide that. No perfect human being could provide that. Only God can provide that infinite, immeasurable holiness or perfection to satisfy his justice. Now, sometimes we think, well, Okay, was God sort of forced into it then? Okay, if if I can't do an angel, I can't do a perfect human being, oh, well, I guess I'll have to go. We sort of looked at that last week, didn't we? We looked at Isaiah 9 and it said, no, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God didn't come down through gritted teeth. God came willingly, gladly to rescue and to save and to be part of us. So God came because he was the only one who could satisfy his ultimate justice and his infinite righteousness at the time. As we think about that, there's a whole range of God-intended spin-offs that come from that as we think about uh, what Jesus or what God has done for us. And this is designed to grow our awe and our love for God as we think about that. Look in verse 17 there. It says in 17, uh, Jesus becomes our merciful and faithful high priest, making propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means Jesus satisfied God's justice by absorbing it on our behalf. Jesus now represents us before God, saying that we are his people, as a merciful and faithful high priest would do. And that's reflecting back out of the Old Testament and their priestly uh, systems and sacrifice at the time. He's merciful and he's faithful. Look in verse 18, for a follow-on there also. It says this, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted part of this faithful and merciful high priest. Jesus never sinned. Jesus was incapable of sinning, but he still faced the world we live in. You might say, Jesus was incapable of sinning, or how was he truly human? He was fully human and fully God, but he was incapable of sinning. There was no sinful nature residing within Jesus whatsoever. So it wasn't like he was tempted, will I do the wrong thing or will I do the right thing? He always did the right thing, but he still faced the temptations. He still faced all the challenges we face. He still faced the trials of jealousy and greed. What did the devil do? The devil took him up to a high mountain and said, Jesus, 
Look out upon this whole world. I will give you all the treasures and riches of this world. So he was tempted there with perhaps greed. Never sinned. Never failed. But the great thing about that is this. Whatever you or I are facing or will face in life, Jesus has been there. He knows what we're going through. He knows what we're facing. See, Jesus fully identifies us with, with us in every way because he's fully human. He knows these weaknesses. He knows these frailties. And that is a great comfort for us when we are struggling because Jesus knows exactly what I'm going through. I'm not alone as I go through those struggles. Jesus can sympathise with me. He can't sort of sit there, I'm not exactly sure what you're going through, but it must be hard. No, Jesus knows what we're going through. A faithful, merciful high priest who's able to help all those who are being tempted. And tell me this, just tell me this, don't you have a sweeter and closer connection with someone who has shared the same experiences as you? If you're going through life and you get right down on the level with someone else who's been through the same stuff that you've been through, the same trials, the same pain, the same grief, don't you feel a closer connection and a closer bond with them? Because you can relate to each other. Yeah, actually, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've been through the same thing. And that's the sweetness of the relationship of Jesus being fully God and fully man that we can have because he's on the same level. He knows what we've been through. He knows exactly what we're feeling and how we are tracking at that particular time. God doesn't send an angel to do that. He sends himself to become one of us and fully identifies with us in our weaknesses. That should stir our hearts. That should stir our hearts that he would come and know exactly what we go through. From Jesus first coming down and then dying, we also receive this. Look in verse 15. It says there, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christmas, Jesus coming down, opens the way through who he is to, as it were, obliterate the fear of death and the chains that it puts on us. This is one of the greatest liberating things that Jesus has done. He comes down and eventually dies, and that absolutely blasts open the doors of death. They are no longer holding us back through fear or any type of bondage or lifelong slavery through fear of death. Through Jesus first coming down and then dying, we are set free and liberated from that. That won't happen unless Jesus first comes. He comes. Here's something else that I thought about too. As I thought about this idea of God and his coming down to personally save us that should blow us away, that should make us really sit back in awe and wonder about the gospel and about what the uh, the Christian story is truly all about. Think about every other world religion that you might possibly have or cult in the sense of salvation. Take any religion that springs to mind and what you'll find there in the sense of salvation in those religions or false cults is a salvation that is works-based or somehow appease their God or their whatever it is Uh, to earn salvation, to earn rescue by doing good works. You think of any religion or cult around the world, it'll be somewhat linked back to a works-based or somehow appease this God to get my salvation. Perhaps you could picture it like this. There's a big mountain, a huge mountain, and God sits on the top of this mountain. He's, He's right up there on the peak of this mountain. And you can go and choose any religion, any cult you like, 
and find your own path and then make your own way up to the top of the mountain to get to God. Think about that. Probably if you think about it long enough, you say, I've actually heard that before. Maybe not so much the mountain, but more like just find your own path to God and do your best on that path and you'll eventually get to God. There's many different ways you can find God. There's many different paths up the mountain. You, can just, you just find the one that suits you and you can make your own way up that mountain. And you do. You claw your way up that mountain through all sorts of difficulties. And if you can do it good enough and if you can make it to the top, God will reward you of salvation when you get to the top of that mountain. Sort of sounds fair, doesn't it? Sort of sounds right, the way our human psyche thinks. If I can just claw my way up this mountain on my path, and if I can just get to God, he'll then rescue me and save me, and he take me to be with him. Here's the difference. The God of the Bible doesn't sit at the top of the mountain waiting for us to come up to him. That's not where he sits. But instead, the God of the Bible first comes down to us, comes down to us and brings us up the mountain together with him. Call it the mountain of life. Jesus comes to us when we are helpless and hopeless. He comes to us first. We're not clawing our way up to him. He picks us up and he draws us alongside of him and we travel life's journey with Jesus up the mountain of life. There's no better demonstration of the gospel really than at Christmas when we remember and we celebrate that Jesus comes down. We're not clawing our way up to him. Jesus comes down. God comes down. This sets Christianity apart from any other religion cult, extremism, whatever you want to think of in this world. It does. It seriously sets it apart from every other way of somehow trying to get to God. God comes down first. And that is truly amazing and truly glorious. You see, this is why when we get to the season of Christmas, it's a season of joy and gladness. We are reflecting and celebrating on the coming of God to rescue and to save us. Of all those great and well-known hymns that we sing, Christmas carols, if you want to call them, but they were actually hymns in the church, many of them, they're all reflecting the, the joy and the gladness of God coming down. It's a glorious picture. How do we respond then as we think about this Christmas message? How do we respond today as we think about here what's happening in Hebrews and, and uh, being shared with us that, this one who partook of flesh and blood with us and then dies for us. I reckon we go back to the start of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1 and we see here what they say. It says this in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. It should do two things as we draw closer to it and and pay much closer attention. One, it must grow us in worship. That we would sing with the angels as they announce the coming of God, when they announce joy to the world. As we reflect on that, we should want to sing in our hearts about that joy. The truth of the incarnation, God becoming a man, should stun us. But unfortunately, very often it doesn't. 
What stuns us more often is the presence under the tree and not the coming of the Son of God. We need to rouse our hearts. We need to stir our hearts. We need to reflect deeply upon the coming of the Son of God. That should be the most stunning thing about Christmas for us. That God would be with us to rescue us, to save us. And that should produce in us a heart of joy and gladness and worship for this great and glorious God. Secondly, maybe you haven't discovered who this Jesus is. I would say you need to change your mind about who he is and what he's done. You need to be totally transformed in your mind about who Jesus is. He's just not a nice bloke who was here 2,000 years ago and did a few good things and then died. That's not Jesus. That's part of who Jesus of Nazareth is. He's way much more than that, as we've just been talking about. You need to change your mind. You need to radically change the way you think about Jesus and see him as uh, your Lord and your Saviour. Let's pray. Father, we uh, give you thanks and we give you praise this morning as we come and uh, reflect on this Christmas message, reflect on the, the incarnation that, God, you would come and be amongst us. You would come and be with us. Uh, Lord, today I pray, please stir our hearts. Please awaken our hearts again. Do not let this sort of just go ho-hum and blow over us, Lord. I, I pray that you would stir the affections in our hearts. I pray that you would stir our mind to think about the glory that God would come and be amongst us. Experience everything we experience. And then, amazingly, allow himself to be killed 33 years later on a cross. But all that part of your glorious plan, Lord, to reunite us, to reconcile us back to yourself. Lord, I pray, please help us over these next few days to, to stir our hearts and reflect our minds upon who you are. And let that, I pray, Lord, produce great worship in our hearts and a life that reflects that glory. Lord, for those who perhaps have heard about you in the past, Jesus, but never really understood fully who you are, we ask now that, Holy Spirit, you would do a miracle in those hearts, that you would actually open up the eyes of their hearts to see this stunning miracle that God would be with us in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. Please help today, Lord, for those to believe that, to trust in that, and to receive him as their Lord and Saviour. Today, Father, we thank you, and we praise you, and we glorify you that you would come to us, your creation, rebels, but you loved us so much that you would come and be with us to save us. Well, we thank you for that, and we pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen.